Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. While many of us tend to book our travel online these days, there's always been travel posters stuck on walls at travel agents to advertise destinations across the world. But unlike fine art, these posters were often ripped down and put in the bin at the end of an advertising campaign. Fortunately for us, some were saved, and Chris Bailey of Picture This spent years collecting Hong Kong travel posters, a special collection now owned by the Hong Kong Baptist University. The posters will be on show at the university from April the 4th until the 13th in an exhibition, Pictures of Persuasion, Hong Kong's Travel Posters. They date from 1930 to 1980 and show a variety of different artists and designers as well as popular culture. I joined Dr. James Ellis, a research assistant professor, and Dr. John Johnston, an assistant professor and historian of art, both at Hong Kong Baptist University's Academy of Visual Arts, along with Chris Bailey of Picture This, to have a sneak preview of the travel posters that will be on show. Yes, hello. My name is James Ellis. I'm a research assistant professor with the Academy of Visual Arts at Hong Kong Baptist University. So we're here looking at this great selection of Hong Kong travel posters. So you've now got this collection at Hong Kong Baptist University. So how many posters are in it? I believe that there's slightly over 100, about 106, and they mostly date from the 1930s to the 1980s. It's definitely a a great treasure that we have here at the uh, university. It's one of the finest collections, if not the finest the most concentrated collection of vintage Hong Kong travel posters. My research interests are very much about Hong Kong's cultural heritage, especially during the colonial period. And I think that these are very wonderful examples of uh, Hong Kong's cultural heritage. I'm curating an exhibition in April called Pictures of Persuasion at uh, Academy of Visual Arts. And it talks about the wealth of history and art and design and popular culture that these posters include. I think they're very interesting because they give you a glimpse into, for instance, mid-century commercial art, but also talk about the visual languages of Western modernism and modern art. However, I think for the general community in Hong Kong, they offer a very important and valuable historical and social perspective on the way that Hong Kong and outsiders also uh, conceived of Hong Kong's image both in the West and uh, locally during the colonial period. And if you look at these posters, they're not only interesting advertisements or illustrations, but they have very important themes that are uh, still important, I think, in Hong Kong, including defending uh, colonialism, uh, the local and overseas identities of Hong Kong, as I said, and uh, the way that the uh, posters often capture a lost urban environment, sort of the tangible uh, history of Hong Kong. So if you have a chance to see these works, um, especially for some older members of the community, they reflect the collective memory of a lot of Hong Kongers and are definitely a part of the city's rich cultural heritage. Yes, wouldn't it be lovely to get some older generation people in here to look at some of these images, not only from a nostalgic perspective, but also to sort of share their insights into the 50s and 60s. Also, how much of this is accurate art and how much is this wishful thinking in terms of advertising Hong Kong? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's a mixture of different imagery. There, there are uh, photographs from uh, the 70s and 80s that do capture the physical environment of Hong Kong in a way that, um, in, in capturing areas that are lost, for instance, 
instance, uh, Tiger Bomb Garden and the Tiger Pagoda in uh, Causeway Bay, something older Hong Kongers are familiar with, but younger Hong Kongers don't understand the importance and relevance of, the, of these amusement parks and different things that people did in the past. But also these posters, not the photographic ones necessarily, but the others record the intangible cultural heritage of, of Hong Kong, the lifestyles that people had in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, and the things that they did, the activities that they took part in as a community that is basically lost today and are part of a lost city. Now tell me about the artist Don Kingman. Don Kingman is very interesting. He was commissioned in uh, the early 1960s by the Hong Kong Tourist Association to create four uh, basically watercolors that were transformed into colored lithographs. And he is an important artist because he was born in the United States, but he had training at the Lingnan University locally. And he was a master of Chinese ink and brushwork. And he was also a master of what I would call regionalist West Coast uh, watercolor. And so the four works that are in the Hong Kong collection show an interesting mix of Eastern and Western aesthetic sensibilities. And because he did have a family link and a personal link to Hong Kong, he presents Hong Kong in a very whimsical and fun way. His art, I think it's been called satire, but without any sort of bite. He definitely loved Hong Kong. Yes, and his watercolours are stunning, the way that he portrays the city. Now, he also would go travelling for Pan Am. He seems to have got quite a good gig there. Yes, I I just learned that today from uh, Mr Bailey, that he he had a very important commission from from Pan Am where he had 21 images that he was asked to create, and they flew him first class to to the different cities that he was going to be depicting. And so apparently for an artist who was... Quite important as an artist, but not necessarily the most wealthy artist. It was quite a, a cash to be able to have this commission. Now you've got more than 100 travel posters in this important collection now being held at the Hong Kong Baptist University. How are you hoping that uh, people will be able to utilize it? Well, it will be available for researchers, both at our university and others, to to look at. It's actually been digitized, and and it can be found on the uh, library webpage as well. But I I think it's important that that the collection was assembled, and I think it's important that it's being held together as one entity. And I think it's going to be a treasure not only for researchers like myself, but also anyone uh, locally from the universities who want to see an interesting and concise, but yet uh, a strong overview of this important part of the collective memory of Hong Kong. It is here, and it will be here for generations to come. And I I think that also outsiders will be very interested to see how Hong Kongers represented themselves and how others saw Hong Kong during the late colonial period. It's interesting to see how some of the imagery actually disappears over time. Like, for example, in the early art travel posters of Hong Kong, you see seaplanes, of Mm. course, of BOAC. They disappear later. Also, pagodas and junks. Yeah, it's quite interesting. You can trace, actually, uh, the evolution of the travel to Hong Kong through the posters. Uh, Not only do you see early ocean liners, but you also see the flying boats that were landing near Kai Tak Airport, and you see the beginnings of the jet age as well. And it's reflected in jet age imagery to a degree as well. So you see the evolution of, of the travel industry. You see the way different people were able to come to Hong Kong over time. And you also see a sense of the changing aesthetics of commercial art and also fine art. 
Now, ladies in Changsams also make quite a, a regular appearance. That's absolutely true. <laughs> well, I think one of the key ways that Hong Kong was promoted in the past were through the young ladies who've lived in Hong Kong in the past. And very often in these images, you'll see very fashionable, very beautiful young women being used to promote the city to outsiders. And actually, you see that throughout the entire chronology of the posters. And it's kind of interesting how some things don't change over time, at least during the mid-decades of the 20th century. So, yes, certainly uh, you see a lot of uh, Chung Sam uh, dresses and very elegant and, and beautiful young women being portrayed in, in these illustrations. Now, as a visual arts expert, what appeals to you about the collection? Well, as, as I said, I, I'm an uh, art historian, but I'm also quite interested in mass culture and just uh, cultural history in general in, in Hong Kong. I'm, I'm not necessarily only interested in fine art, even though there are fine artists and large names. George Matou, for instance, the action painter, the French action painter, who is an associate and a colleague of Jackson Pollock in, in New York. He's represented in the collection. Don Kingman, who we mentioned earlier, is represented as well. But I'm quite interested in commercial art and illustration. And I, I think that the division and the distinction between commercial art and fine art is disappearing over time among the uh, scholarship in, in the academy. And so I, I, I personally want to take a part in showing people the aesthetic and, and the beautiful aspects of commercial art and illustration and kind of obliterating that distinction between uh, artists who work for money and artists who were considered fine artists. I'm Dr. John Johnston. I'm an assistant professor at the Academy of Visual Arts at Hong Kong Baptist University. What are you hoping now to do with those posters? So is it students at Hong Kong Baptist University to be able to research different elements of them? Well, the students here are our priority, and we can incorporate these posters in classroom exercises. The students can do original research on the posters. We also hope that scholars here at HKBU and at other universities locally, regionally, internationally will see this as a resource. We'll research these posters and have them better known around the world. And we are excited to exhibit the posters in a variety of ways in the future, but most pressingly is our upcoming exhibition on April the 3rd here at HKBU. Tell me about that. That's an exhibition that will be curated by Dr. James Ellis, and we will likely exhibit most, if not all, of the posters in this collection. We hope to arrange them thematically rather than strictly chronologically, so we'll be looking at issues such as how Hong Kong presents itself to foreigners, what are the experiences that these posters promise visitors to Hong Kong, what are the different strategies that are used visually in terms of realistic painting, more abstract images, photography. So there are a number of themes that will be addressed in this exhibition. Yes, just in the variety that I'm looking at today, we've got this artwork going back to the 1930s and on, and then the later photographs and all the, I really sort of, without t sounding too stereotyped, the, the iconic Hong Kong images, the, the Pakoda's junks. On a BAOAC poster, you've got also a seaplane, which would have been the height of modernity at the time. Yeah, that's true. And it's interesting to see how what is exotic depends on whether it's familiar to you or not. So there are images such as street scenes from Hong Kong that will look quite familiar to those who know Hong Kong. But then the audience abroad would have seen this as very exotic. Even just the Chinese characters on street signs would seem like a real Far Eastern kind of imagery. So it's interesting to see how the mundane can be presented as something that's very exotic. 
It's also interesting that one of the posters that we're in front of at the moment is uh, Hong Kong is a sporting paradise. Yeah, that is a surprising. Those of us who live here know how much enjoyment we get out of hiking and being outdoors. But in this poster, there's people playing polo and tennis and on the beach. And I'm very attracted to an image showing people having a picnic. I think that's my kind of sporting exercise. Chris, how do you feel about seeing your collection here at Hong Kong Baptist University? It's lovely to see the posters out because for so many years when we had them, they were hidden in a plan chest in the gallery. And they didn't see the light of day as often as they were meant to. And one of the rewarding things for me in being able to pass custodianship of this collection to Hong Kong Baptist University is that they will get the posters out on display more often than we did. Tell me about how you and your wife, Pamela, put the collection together. It was, well, I won't call it accidental, but it certainly wasn't a course that we charted and set out on day one. Back in 2002, when we first started working as Picture This, we quite quickly started buying and selling Hong Kong travel posters and we felt that it was a shame that we were just selling them on and not uh, keeping any because both the artistic appeal and the nostalgic appeal was very strong to both myself and Pamela. And so we decided then that uh, every poster that came through our hands that we didn't have in the collection, we would quote-unquote archive. And if a better one came along, then we could always upgrade the condition. We didn't really know what course we were charting. We didn't know whether there would be 30 posters in the collection by the end, 101 or 500. Nobody had ever set out a list or a checklist of Hong Kong travel posters. So as we went on in the first two or three years, I think we were putting about 20 posters a year in the collection. And by the end, we've ended up with just over 100. Now, when you started off, picture this in 2002, and you had this new area. I mean, you had maps, you had antiquarian books, but uh, suddenly this new area of travel posters. I have to say, while I saw them as wonderful visual art uh, a lot of the time, I didn't realise that what you were really picking up was sometimes entirely, well, you know, they may have been more at the time, but now have become virtually unique posters from the 1930s onwards? Certainly, there are some posters in the collection that are quite commonplace. There's a TWA Hong Kong poster by David Klein from the 60s that TWA printed a number of times and over several years, and it's definitely not a scarce poster. But there are also at least a dozen posters in the collection where in the 15 years that we've been collecting, the one in the collection is the only example of that poster that we've ever encountered. It's uh, quite exciting. It was exciting, and I tell you, Even after collecting for 12 years, when you find a poster you've never seen before, that's the buzz. That really was the buzz in putting the collection together, was finding unrecorded and uncharted posters. Tell me about going to Copenhagen. Ah, well, back in 2004, there was a wonderful poster. In fact, the earliest Hong Kong travel poster. It's a big horizontal format with black borders. The artwork's by a little-known artist called Pano Atakai, and it popped up at auction in New York. And of course, with the time difference from Hong Kong, I had to get up at four in the morning to bid for this poster. And I went to bed 15 minutes later again, disappointed because I was the underbidder on a poster that had sold for six or seven times its estimate. I didn't find it again for 10 years, but uh, it popped up again in 2014 with a dealer in Sweden. And he and I negotiated a price and finally came to an agreement. But because I had never dealt with him before and we didn't know anyone in common I wasn't confident to send a large amount of money to him in the hope that he would then send me the poster so we agreed to have a physical exchange um, (laughs) and we agreed to meet in Copenhagen airport so I flew all the way to Copenhagen (laughs) 
was greeted by this man with a poster rolled in a tube at the greetings <laughs> barrier in the airport. And we went off to the coffee shop where we made very sure that the uh, table we were sitting at was dry and clean. And I unrolled this poster to make sure it was what I thought I was buying, which it was. And then I had to pull a large wadge of cash out of my pocket, which I proceeded to count and hand over to him in an airport cafe. I don't know what the people around us thought we were up to. <laughs> but I took the poster, said goodbye to him, and uh, fled back through um, customs and back onto the plane and flew back to London again. That's good fun. So, I mean, you've got here now at Hong Kong Baptist University uh, just over 100 posters that are now a permanent collection to be viewed, to be researched. Yes, that's right. So by about 2014, we were still collecting the posters. They hadn't been on public display since 2006 when we had an exhibition at the Mandarin Hotel. But we were getting to a stage where I would never be able to say we had a complete collection but we were only finding one or two editions each year for the collection. So it was getting to the stage where, for me, the excitement of building the collection was coming to an end. And in 2016, when my family and I relocated back to the UK, we decided it was an opportune time to try and find a more permanent home for the collection. There were various criteria that I wanted to fulfil when we sold the collection. Firstly, and most importantly, was to not break the collection up, make sure it would stay together. Secondly, was to try and keep the collection in Hong Kong. I felt this was the most appropriate home for it. And thirdly, I was keen to make sure that the collection would end up in a home where it would be available for public display and also potentially for academic research. And Hong Kong Baptist University was able to fulfil all of those criteria. And that's why we me in particular, having put the collection together, was so pleased to find this new long-term home for the collection. In amongst it, there are about three major artists. Yes, we have four posters by the renowned Chinese-American artist Don Kingman. Kingman, born in California, but spent his childhood in Hong Kong. From the 1950s, became a very well-known member of the uh, California School of Watercolorists. But he maintained his ties with Hong Kong throughout his life, and in the early 60s, was commissioned by the Tourist Association to produce four paintings, which would then be turned into posters as well as used for other advertising material. So I guess from a Hong Kong perspective, Kingman would be the best-known artist. And he is quite uh, interesting in the sense that uh, he would spend a year here when he was age 13, and that was what sparked his love affair with Hong Kong. Here he would be taught Chinese watercolour, and then back in America he would learn Western watercolour. That's right. He studied as a child at Lingnan College here and uh, was taken under the wings of a Chinese artist, teacher. And then when he went back to California as a young man, it was Depression-era America, and uh, times were pretty tight, but he was determined to pursue his painting studies so he went to Western Watercolour School or Art School in California in San Francisco. But he also worked washing dishes, literally washing dishes in a Chinese restaurant at night. So he's quite unusual in being trained in both the Chinese style of watercolouring and the Western style of watercolouring. And his unique style of painting is a bit of a crossover between the two. And uh, in amongst the other posters that we can see on display here is an interesting one where... The Causeway Bay reclamation isn't quite where I expected it to be. Yes, uh, this is a poster by China Airlines from mid-1970s Hong Kong. I like to uh, <laughs> quiz people by asking them to look at it and see what's wrong with this poster. It's a view from the peak looking down over mid-levels, central and across the harbour towards Kowloon. And on first view, it just seems like another sunny mid-1970s day in Hong Kong. But actually everything's in the wrong place because Causeway Bay, which should be to the right of Central, is on this photograph to the left of Central. And what happened 
was that the uh, printer must have got the negative of the photograph of Hong Kong reversed <laughs> in the enlarger when he was making the print. Well, and it's all nobody... tall buildings, isn't it? <laughs> and nobody realised. <laughs> but actually what's interesting is it plays tricks with the mind because you'd think as soon as you looked at it, you'd realise what's wrong, but most people can't work it out for a no, while. No, I have to say it took me a while, uh, mm. but it was a reclamation that got me. I think uh, without it, no, you are... I mean, obviously, and also mid-1970s, the vastness of, of Victoria. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any trouble passing this collection? over I mean if you've spent you know a number of years or is the curiosity for you in the chase in the hunt and you're off on your next collection yes I think that's a very good summary of it <laughs> uh, for me definitely the putting together of a collection is more rewarding than the long-term ownership of the collection I love the hunt I love the chase I love finding things that are unrecorded of course often one has the disappointment of missing out on posters but that's just part of the game and if we didn't have the disappointment I guess we'd never have the satisfaction when we eventually hunt down a piece and add it in the collection i am moving on to the next collection now i don't know what it'll be i'm not sure if we'll ever find anything as special as this collection but yes i'm looking forward not backwards <laughs> originally i mean if you take it back say 20 years or even less you would have been like your description of copenhagen you'd have been on planes going to art fairs going to auctions how has the internet changed that to build a collection like this you need hard work and perseverance certainly but there's two other things that you really need, and we were fortunate with both uh, when building this collection. One was an element of luck, and the other was uh, good timing. And we certainly had good timing here because we started building this collection around 2002, and that was just the time when a lot of this sort of product was ending up on the internet. Art galleries and poster galleries were beginning to go online. Importantly, auction houses were beginning to go online, and also marketplaces like eBay were beginning to take off. And this gave us the ability to sit in Hong Kong and access all sorts of posters and other product that was being offered for sale all over the world. Ten years earlier, we would have, as you say, we would have been on the plane, tramping around markets, having to go to local auctions, going around poster galleries and other galleries. And it would never have been possible to find this number of posters. We would have just missed out on things. So, yes, we were very fortunate. My thanks to Chris Bailey of Picture This and John Johnston and James Ellis, Assistant Professors of the Academy of Visual Arts at Hong Kong Baptist University. The exhibition, Pictures of Persuasion, Hong Kong's Travel Posters, will be on show at the Communication and Visual Arts Building at Hong Kong Baptist University in Kowloon Tong from April the 4th until the 13th. To finish off the programme, here's some vintage archive sound from Radio Hong Kong in February 1965 as Earl Mountbatten of Burma, the then head of Britain's Armed Services, leaves Hong Kong after a three-day visit. Lord Mountbatten was killed 40 years ago in an attack in Northern Ireland. And that's the end of the news from Radio Hong Kong. The time now is five minutes past eight. The Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral of the Fleet, the Earl Mountbatten of Burma, is leaving Hong Kong this morning after a short visit to the colony. We're crossing over to Queen's Pier now for a description of the departure ceremony. Over now to Ted Thomas. Good morning to you from Queen's Pier, where it's a cloudy and grey morning. A guard of honour consisting and representing the three services, a Royal Naval Detachment of one officer and 12 ratings, a detachment of the 49th Field Regiment Royal Artillery, one subaltern and 60 men, and a detachment from the Royal Air Force of one officer and 24 men from Kai Tech, is drawn up in front of us here, with their backs 
to Queen Pier. Queen's Pier itself sees the Lady Maureen, His Excellency the Governor's yacht, tied up alongside and waiting for the arrival of Admiral of the Fleet, the Earl Mountbatten of Burma, the Chief of the Defence Staff. Here at Queen's Pier, there's a large group of friends and well-wishers gathered to say farewell to the Earl Mountbatten of Burma. His stay here in Hong Kong has been a short one, only three days. But during this time, he's managed to sandwich in a, a very full program indeed. He's met service commanders, visited the commanding officers of brigade units, visited HMS Tamar, the naval shore base here in the Royal Air Force Kite Tech. He's had discussions with government officials, and he's had time to see something of the social side of Hong Kong, too. There have been luncheons, cocktail parties, dinners, a launch trip, and many other social engagements. But the visit to Hong Kong has been primarily one of duty, one of seeing and learning. And in this respect, it's been a very full visit indeed. Three days ago, El Mountbatten of Burma arrived in Hong Kong. Today, Tuesday the 23rd of February, he leaves. And we are now waiting for the arrival of the Colonial Secretary, Mr. Teasdale, who should be here in just one moment. Now, El Mountbatten moves down from the desk, accompanied by the guard commander, and to the music of the slow march, played by the band of the South Wales Borders, moves along the front rank of the Guard of Honour. Now El Mountbatten has completed the inspection of the Guard of Honour and is walking back to the band, through the ranks of the band, to have a look at and inspect the band of the South Wales Borders. The Guard comes to the slope... Navy and the Air Force with their rifles at the traditional slope arm position and the Army at the trail or shoulder. And now the Chief of Defence Staff is at the top of the steps. There are two boats alongside the launch of the Commodore Hong Kong and the Lady Maureen, the yacht of His Excellency the Governor, Sir David Trench. And the music of Old Lang Syne, played by the band of the South Wales Waters, the launch to Commodore Hong Kong moves off from Queen's Pier and we hear the traditional crackle, pop and roar of firecrackers. Hong Kong's customary way of saying goodbye to friends. And then, almost as if on cue, a giant liner detaches itself from Queen's Pier and sweeps across our line of vision, adding its own magnificent presence to this auspicious occasion. And as we look across the harbour, we can see the flashes 
of fire and the smoke of the cordite as the guns ring out their own tribute to the service commander. And then with a, a roar and a blast of engines, the Royal Air Force pay their own personal tribute to the Chief of Defence Staff as four hunters cutting in low from Green Island swoop across the harbour and dip in salute as they cross the bows of Lady Maureen. The yacht Lady Maureen is now out in midstream and heading across to the opposite side of the harbour to Kaitak, where Lord Mountbatten will disembark and prepare himself for the airplane journey. We see Lady Maureen now pointing her bows towards Kaitak and picking up speed again, preceded by the launch of the Commander British Forces. It's time for us to return you from the City Hall to the studios of Radio Hong Kong. Ted Thomas there for Radio Hong Kong, reporting on Earl Mountbatten of Burma leaving Hong Kong after visiting the city in February 1965. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.